What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to all you faithful patrons of Shea Fifty, and welcome to another edition of the Shea Fifty Mob Pod, a podcast you can't refuse, available on the Full Press Radio Network. I am one half of your hosting tandem here at the bar uh, this afternoon, as always. I am uh, Mike DeBate, and I am joined by my cohort in crime. He is the sunny to my Jimmy Whispers, my good friend Thomas Murphy. Murph, we are back at it again, breaking down one of the greatest films of all time and really the standard setter for all of uh, this genre of mafia movies, mob movies, gangster movies, however you want to categorize it. The Godfather always comes back to the original, and we chronicled the first half of the movie in a 
pretty detailed explanation the last time around. And for those of you that did download the episode, we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you uh, learned a little bit more about the uh, the film. Perhaps you learned something you didn't know about the film. Uh, and we're back at it today to chronicle the second half. Um, which really, I think, is the crescendo of the movie. You really, really get to uh, the uh, the, uh, the peak in action. And uh, without further ado, we want to kick it off. So, uh, Murph, welcome back to the bar, my friend. Thank you for joining me once again. Well, thanks for thanks for not locking me in or locking me out, I should say. Um, <laughs> did you get hate mail? I got hate mail last week. I didn't. I actually didn't get that much uh, hate mail last week. I did. Um, I got hate please, mail. Please, please elaborate. All right. Um, a vast majority. I don't, I don't want to say a majority. Um, a, a vast number of of our of our patrons here at Chase Bippy were up quite upset, quite upset that we're making them <laughs> wait an entire week for the second half of the show. <laughs> How could you do that, Murph? We're sitting there. What? What do you mean over? <laughs> It was one of our longest shows to date, you know, um, chronically just the first half of this film, this great film that, that you know, we, we all own on, on so many different platforms and, and ways and means the point that every time something new comes out, now, now my wife gives me a dirty look and says, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I assure you, I am equally as guilty. I own this on VHS. I own it mm-hmm. on DVD. I own it on Blu-ray. And I was so tempted to go digital download on this as well. I haven't done that yet, and I'm probably yep. going to cave and do that eventually. Uh, but I do own it on major platforms. Uh, VHS is, is locked away. I actually own the old Saga, the chronological version, uh, which you? came in a black sleeve. And I've got I that. I got that it. Is Oh yep. yeah, yeah. It came with the guidebook, the other, uh, which looked like a magazine, and it was, yep. uh, it was, uh, it actually belonged to my dad, and that was one of mm. those things where he handed it down, and I actually had it displayed in my room, uh, you know, when I was uh, on a shelf, a teenager all by itself too. Exactly, it was venerated <laughs> up there with all the, uh, with all the, you know, <laughs> you can make the it. arguments. Yeah, you I can make it. the argument that that was displayed more prominently than the uh, yeah. uh, that the Bible should have been. Right, but, uh, right next to Clemenza's no, sauce pot. And, and absolutely, <laughs> yep, absolutely, Clemenza's sauce pots up there. You know, it's definitely it's 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 right there. You know, the gold. Do you have the Godfather Part Two? <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you have ahead. the cookbook? There, there's a Godfather cookbook out there. Did you know that? There is. I actually, I have the coffee table book, which is The Godfather Legacy, uh, which mm-hmm. was published a few years ago, which is essentially like the Godfather family photo album. And it really mm-hmm. does read like a photo album. You see all the pictures from behind the scenes and when they were filming the movie. And then there are pictures that are actually put in there as if this were the Colleone family um, uh, photo album. So it's interesting. That is my coffee table book. It is out. Uh, you know, people do, uh, you know, thumb through it. I kind of have a coronary every time people pick it up. I'm worried someone's going to spill coffee or beer on White it or gloves. anything. Uh, exactly. White gloves. You know, you have to hermetically seal yourself before you go out, you know, you, you view it. But, uh, Please step into the decontamination chamber before opening the book <laughs> and place your white gloves on carefully. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, no question about it. And there are, and, you know, we'll get into that a little bit toward the end of the show when we talk about the legacy. Uh, there were so many, there were actually a lot of merchandise opportunities that were explored that were never really uh, came yeah. to fruition. A couple of them did, just weren't marketed properly. So we'll get into that in a little bit. Um but for those of you that did listen to the show the last time, we really do appreciate it because it was a long show, and we had to break it up a little bit as much as we didn't want to have to stop. 
it was just too much packed into to one episode. So um, normally we go two weeks. Murph and I, you know, abbreviated it and came back on a week, uh, you know, uh, rest because we definitely wanted to make sure uh, that we chronicled this movie uh, in in its entirety and chronicled it so well for you guys to be able to do it. So in terms of hate mail, yeah, I actually did get when you said hate mail, I was like, okay, where's he going with this? <laughs> but uh, I actually did get a couple of pieces of feedback that uh, a lot of people were waiting uh, very patiently to uh, to hear the uh, the chronicle of the second half of The Godfather. So without further ado, Murph, is there anything you wanted to get to before we get into the action? No, no, let's just jump. Tidbits. Yeah, let's just jump right in, man. Let's 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 get in the car and head to the causeway. All right, excellent. And that's exactly where we left Michael uh, when uh, when we uh, ended uh, last week's show in the first half of The Godfather. Michael had just stood up, um, shot Salotto and McCluskey. Mm-hmm. Um, he had left Louis' restaurant in the Bronx, which had the best feel in the city, by the way. I have to mention that. And he was now in the getaway car heading for the causeway and assumedly heading for a boat to take him to Sicily and take him safely away uh, where he could be under the protection of um, originally it was supposed to be uh, originally um, in um, probably in Southern Italy, not quite Sicily yet, but he would eventually find his way to Sicily and the protection of Don Tomasino, who was a, uh, uh, an emissary of uh, Vito Corleone as well. And a good friend of his, uh, probably the only one he could have trusted to the care of, his son and uh, Sonny actually setting that up and, and caring and making sure that his brother was going to be properly cared for uh, when he was hiding out in Sicily. But the this scene uh, that we had just left, and I know I find myself, and I think, Murph, you probably do as well, that trumpet blare when Michael drops the gun, and it's perfectly timed. Right. Uh, by, uh, you want to thank uh, you know Nito Rota and um, also um, Francis Ford Coppola as well for timing that perfectly. The gun hits the ground and you hear that bum 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 bum. I think every person that watches The Godfather just you know you either pump your fist right alongside it or or you, or you beat to it or you know you maybe even sing along with it uh, when it uh, when it comes along but it really does signify the turning point I think in the movie at that moment Michael is now in the underworld he is now a part of the seedy part of the Colleone family business right the part he never wanted to cater to it's a part he never wanted to participate in but now he's in it and he had to do it to avenge the honor of his father and it is a poignant scene in the movie but it's also a poignant scene in the making of the movie and we kind of hinted at this the last time we were on the uh, the microphone together Al Pacino was not the first choice of Paramount. He wasn't even the second or third choice of Paramount. He was the top choice of Francis Ford Coppola. And they were kind of doing this as a favor to Coppola to say, okay, well, if you're going to make the movie, he was already signed on. If they had let him go, there was going to be a real difficult time getting the movie made. So they relented to have Pacino come in. But Paramount was not thrilled with Pacino's casting. And even through the dailies that um, uh, that Coppola was sending over to Paramount, they were not thrilled with his casting, and they were really ready to pull the trigger, uh, no pun intended, but they were really ready to pull the trigger on firing Al Pacino. And this scene came along, 
And in an interview that uh, Pacino gave, uh, which was a Godfather, a look inside, which anybody that has either the DVD or the VHS or the Blu-ray, um, look on the special features. This uh, Godfather look inside was filmed as they were, it was basically filmed as they were filming Godfather Part Three. And Pacino is interviewed and he basically said that he was out. He was really coming under the assumption that he was out. He was actually, I remember at one point he said that he was in the, uh, in the, in the makeup room and he, he went to use the restroom. And there were two uh, production assistants that were in there that were basically snickering behind his back, having no idea he was in the room with them and mm-hmm. saying, oh, yeah, that guy, the, the guy that's playing Michael is gone. He's, he's done. Uh, we're basically, you know, we're resigned to it. Somebody else is going to come in and play it. So Pacino was really, really resigned to the fact that he was out. And this scene really saved his job. But I don't know, Murph, if you uh, were aware of this. I did a little digging over the weekend. It wasn't just this scene that saved Al Pacino's job. It actually saved Francis Ford Coppola's job. Did you know that? No, I did not know that. I knew the other the other half of this story, but I did not know this. And please get into it. Okay, so essentially what had happened with Coppola is Coppola was not really thrilled with having to film scenes of violence, uh, scenes with any type of force. He's a real, Coppola is a pacifist, and most people would not know that about Francis Ford Coppola with, you know, directing films such as The Godfather and Apocalypse Now. No one would ever think that he was the type of guy that really abhorred violence that much, but it's not something that he was comfortable with and something that he really did not look forward to. Um, The dailies that were being sent to the executives of Paramount were really starting to get under the skin of a lot of these quote-unquote, I don't want to say executives over and over again, because it wasn't just the executives, but they were more pilot people around the executives that were telling the the brass at Paramount. Yeah, they were basically telling the people at Paramount, this is boring. No one's going to sit through a three-hour movie like this. This could be condensed into an hour and a half. We need action. We need the guys coming in, laughing hysterically with the Tommy guns, blowing guys away. That's what the audience wants to see. But Coppola had a different ver- a different vision, which really coincided with what Mario Puzo wanted as author of the novel. So because of the fact that Coppola had had so many difficulties with casting and Paramount was already not thrilled with the casting of Marlon Brando, the casting of Al Pacino. Uh, They felt that James Caan was miscast and that his scenes were being cut dramatically, uh, that he should have had more screen time. Um, So there was a lot that was working against Coppola, and his dailies that he was sending in, they were finding were quite boring. At least this is according to the brass at Paramount. Not only was Al Pacino on the verge of being fired, but Francis Ford Coppola was actually being shadowed by a second director, not a second unit director, a second director, someone that would be there right at the, almost like a relief pitcher. And basically, mm. at, the, at any moment, Francis Ford Coppola could have been yanked and the new director could have gone right in. Imagine having to do that in your job, sitting there trying to do your job, and there's somebody that's sitting next to you that's ready to just take your place that's there and wow. waiting for you to go in. Coppola knew that in order to save his job, he was going to have to show some sort of sign of life. And this is the scene that he uh, initially did. He worked with um, some violence coordinators, believe it or not, that coordinated scenes like this Uh to make it as suspenseful and to make it as, um, 
as, as realistic to the book as possible. And this is a scene that really was filmed so well. Um, and it really captured the essence of the novel. If you go into the Godfather novel and you read the murder of Salazzo and McCluskey, it's very close to how it is in the actual book. And I think that makes it work so well. So this scene really saved not only Pacino's job, but it saved Coppola's job as well. That's 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 an amazing tidbit. That that is just I I can't imagine directing an, a movie in this in this manner and done this well with somebody hanging over your shoulder the entire way because you have to you, it Coppola just seemed to to um to go in into this with, with a vision of epic proportions that that he wasn't going to uh, allow somebody to derail and to to continue to do that with with the um with the studio hanging on you and and i can't imagine the notes that he was getting back during during as he sent dailies in um and just say no we're we're doing it this way we're doing it this way i'll be damned if i let them you know ruin my movie because they're going to uh, threaten to fire me. I, I'm just going to keep doing it. Bravo, bravo. Yeah. That's fantastic. Exactly. And and Pacino chronicles, and he really, Pacino and, and, uh, um, and Coppola have developed such a respect, a reverence for one another, and really a deep friendship as well, but really a respect and a reverence for one another, because they were really, they were rogues, and they were essentially guys that had to band together and put their head down, run forward, and break the plane. <laughs> and that's exactly yeah. what they did with this scene. Pacino actually chronicles one of the uh, – uh, the, he actually intercepted one of the notes that was um, intended from Paramount to Francis Ford Coppola after they showed uh, the dailies. And it said regarding Pacino, when's he going to do something? <laughs> and that was it. That was really wow. it. They basically felt that this guy was as dead and and as and you think about the history now of Al Pacino and the filmography. Boring is not a word that you can use to describe Al Pacino's portrayal in most movies. A lot no. of people call him bombastic. He's been labeled with the overactor, uh, you know, uh, label as well. I happen to enjoy Pacino's style. I think the flamboyance. I think that really feeds into who he is. Pacino actually is nothing like the characters he plays. He's actually very shy, uh, very uh, even sweet, and very reserved uh, in, in real life. And a lot of people would not know that about him. But the characters that he plays are very flamboyant, very over the top. And he does it so well. And I think it's a side that maybe he doesn't cater to in his personal life. And he's able to let that go in his professional life and on camera. But this was the moniker that he was going to be labeled with. He was boring, he was dull, and he was not someone that they wanted to continue having. But this scene really opened the eyes of Paramount. And after this scene, the second unit director was essential. excuse me, the second director was let go. Uh, he was no longer needed, and Al Pacino was now cemented as Michael Corleone. So moving forward, the second half of The Godfather was a lot easier for them to be able to put together because now they knew that this was going to be uh, their job and that it wasn't up for uh, uh, for being uh, um, lost. So Coppola then transitions this scene. After now, Michael is, and getting back into the plot line, after Michael has now murdered the police captain and the um, quote-unquote 
underworld leader now, or the underworld director, I should say is a better word, uh, mm-hmm. to describe Solazzo uh, of guys like Don Barzini and uh, Philip Catalia and these heads of the families that were really kind of doing the behest of Solazzo because he was the guy that was controlling the poppy fields to process the heroin and be the drug kingpin now in the United States. It now means that Michael has to hide out in Sicily, and it also means a lot of gangland violence was going to erupt as a result of this. This blew the lid off of organized crime. Having a police captain shot meant that the police were no longer going to protect organized crime. Even if they wanted to, even if they were being paid well to do that, they couldn't ignore the murder of one of their own. So they were going to crack down on all operations uh, that were doing that. And everything essentially uh, that was organized crime was brought to a standstill. And we see a newspaper montage with like an operatic um, instrumental that's playing in the background. And you see, uh, you know, still photos of people being murdered. One little tidbit that I wanted to uh, advise you on is a couple of weeks ago, Murph and I chronicled The Untouchables, uh, Brian De Palma's uh, uh, film starring Kevin Costner, Sean Connery, And one of the actual still photos is a real photo of the actual Frank Nitti, who was played by now, unfortunately, the late Billy Drago. He passed away very shortly after uh, Murph and I completed uh, the the chronicle that we did of The Untouchables. But one of the still photos is a still photo of the dead body of Frank Nitti. Now, Nitti was actually not thrown off of the uh, the building by Elliot Ness. That was done for uh, the movie purposes, and that was done for the character purposes, and was really done well with the movie. But uh, that was not historically accurate. The real Frank Nitti actually shot himself in anticipation of being uh, caught by the police. So one of those still photos, it kind of looks like there's a guy that's slumped against, it looks like a chain-link fence and his head is down, and you can see a wound, his face covered in blood. It's a pretty gory shot. Uh, That Mm. is the actual Frank Nitti. Um, So I didn't know if anybody was aware of that. All these movies kind of tie together somehow. So that's the tie-in between The Godfather and The Untouchables. Um, but this really is a transition to the movie. And originally there was supposed to be a, uh, an intermission um, due to the three-hour length of the movie and the height of that type of a, of a scene where you're on high from Michael you know, committing the murders and avenging his father. Uh, Coppola thought that it would be a good idea to have an intermission put into that movie. Eventually, essentially, Paramount overruled him, and, and Coppola did relent on that. He didn't push it. Uh, but originally, that was supposed to be a uh, uh, an intermission. So we start to see the transition of the movie and how that's going to work, and Michael now being a part of the Corleone family. Um, in terms of the intermission, Murph, what... I, I guess I'm going to put you on the spot here, and I'm going to ask you, do you feel that the movie would have had a greater impact if they did have that old-school-type intermission like a lot of old movies did where, you know, The Sound of Music had one and yep. Gone with the Wind had one? And I do you do. think that would have heightened it, or do mm-hmm. you think that they were better off editing it the way they did the full three hours straight through? No, I, 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 I think it would have worked much better with the intermission. I, I really do. You know, just just to take a moment. I mean, God, man, that, that was some of the best sex on screen ever filmed everybody needed a cigarette at that point in time they needed to walk out and get a drink and do something and just to just to take that in after the slow build up 
um, that went on throughout the first portion of this film. I think I think it would have worked fantastically. Um, it, it's really hard to to sit there and say that. Um, you know, it, it's almost nitpickish uh, <laughs> when when you're talking about the greatest film that w- that has ever been made. And you know, this is the hill that I'll die on. Um, <clears throat> And uh, but no, I I think you know just to be able to walk out and then have and then you know hear that bell to run back and and see people trying to run back to their seats, which was um, you know, in a more civilized time <laughs> where people would have said, yeah, I was sitting there and gone back to their regular seats, but just to get back in there, you, you for those of you that are younger and you don't remember intermissions. When you, when they would the theater would ring the bell because you know the the second part of the film was about to start. Yeah, I think it would have worked fantastically. Nowadays we we can all hit pause and go out and and do something. Um, you know, see, women head to the powder room or or whatever. And uh, but but back then you couldn't. And and I think an intermission right there would have would have been really perfect. Yeah, I mean, I actually agree with you. I think that the intermission is an awesome lost art in a lot of movies, yeah. and I think it really would have worked well with this one because there and, was and it, and the, it should be brought back. It should be brought yeah. back. Nobody should have to I sit agree. through three hours of of Avengers and and you know with missing something. No, the intermission is coming up. I, I really, <laughs> I completely agree, and I would be all for that as well. And I think that it really would have worked well in a film like this, especially mm-hmm. with the rising and the falling action of you know. Everything that happened, it really is a movie that does ebb and flow when it comes to the action. And the action comes at times where sometimes you anticipate it, sometimes you don't. But uh, with this, it was really building toward that moment. And I think there was such, you're right, there was such a release at that point after, uh, you know, the murder of McCluskey and Salazzo. And, uh, you know, bringing this back in. So we see the newspaper montage, and that continues to go through. And the newspaper montage, I think, brilliantly ends uh, with a, a small article that's in the paper um, that shows Syndicate Big Shot Vito Colleone returns home from the hospital. And at that point, you know that the Don is now okay. He's able to return, but he's not in great shape. I mean, they're still transporting him with a, you know, <laughs> they're transporting him with a, a, a uh, an IV. They're transporting yep. him in a hospital. He's not coming home, walking home with his hat in hand and waving to the crowd. He's still in pretty rough shape. He's still convalescing. But because of the gangland wars and the gangland violence, the, the Colonial family knows that they can do very little to protect him at this point. So they want to have him in his home base where they can control the security and everything that's going on around him. And you see Vito return home. The whole family's there, Sonny and his children, Tom Hagen, Fredo. Uh, Connie is, is there as well with her husband. And everybody is kind of, you know, rallying around the godfather coming home and uh the bodyguards are carrying Vito in his stretcher <laughs> upstairs and this is something i know you know murph uh yep. if uh if you if i think we're going i can hear the laughs and i think we're going in the same spot uh i'm gonna let you take this tidbit uh because the, i think people have heard enough of my voice already but uh this is typical marlon brando this is typical uh of what he did and this was his right. idea so uh uh go ahead and uh, uh those, those guys that were carrying him up the stairs they got a surprise while they were carrying him up yeah. a rather staircase on the set of the Colleone family uh, <laughs> it is it, it is a very steep staircase and Brando is is a notorious practical joker nobody you know people people 
out there, if you don't know this about, he, he would he would do anything to get a rise out of people, give him, make them make them laugh. You know, he, he, there, there's a story in um, about uh, oh god, uh, the the movie he did with Matthew Broderick, um, freshman. Re- the freshman, thank you very much. And and where where Broderick said, yeah, I wasn't really expecting Brando to slap me. <laughs> Brando would just give him a smack. <laughs> but during this scene and the filming of it, he got a bunch of of lifting plates, York plates for um, those that that don't know are are um, are for weightlifting, and he put them underneath him in the um, on the stretcher. So. He, that stretcher weighed about 550 pounds and these guys are trying to lug him up these stairs and he's just he's just he's doing everything he can not to crack up while these guys are trying to pick him up and carry him up the stairs it's really cruel but it's funnier than hell and he said they they had to film the film it like two or three times because they they these guys kept dropping the stretcher on the way up. Yep. There was one interview where there's a, yeah, we were lucky we didn't have to rebuild the staircase after that because Brando was so laden with weightlifting plates that, that the guys just kept dropping the stretcher that he was on, and they couldn't figure out why he was cracking up until he, you know, you know, pulled back the sheet, and there there was an extra 200 pounds there. <laughs> But that's 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 my that's why you started talking and I couldn't stop giggling because I think it's the funniest thing ever. I would have loved to have worked with Brando, working with somebody like this who just you know on a on a film set that that has gone through all of the um, the trials and tribulations that this one had you needed moments like this and and that was one of them um i also heard that his scene later later on that we'll we'll get to in the um in the uh <clears throat> in the tomato garden was uh was was also a bit ad-libbed it was it, it was fantastic it, it, it was great and there there's there's my bit of rambling and we'll get back to mike where we really should be. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not rambling at all. I think it's, it's really, I think you absolutely nailed it when you talk mm-hmm. about Brando and the genius of Brando. And this yeah. this movie is really a master class in the genius of Marlon Brando. I and mean, he's had a reputation of not really preparing for his roles or anything like that. And that's always been the knock on Brando. But when, you, cards see and, what, yep. when you see what this guy is able to turn it on, you talk about... You know, we and you know Murph and I are obviously in the sports realm, so we hear about guys that you know really may give like a half-hearted effort, but they turn it on when you need to. I think mm-hmm. LeBron is one of those guys that a lot of people say that, oh, well, he doesn't give any effort, but when he turns it on, that's when really you see that the brilliance of who the guy is. And I think in a lot of ways, I think that can be said about Brando and his acting. Um, he was a notorious prankster. Uh, a scene that we chronicled uh, the last week when we talked about the first half of The Godfather, when he slaps Johnny Fontaine, and he goes, you're going to act like a man. And he goes, that was ad-libbed. That was not yep. part of the original script. Brando uh, smacked Al Martino in his face a couple of times. As a matter of fact, the camera pans toward um, Robert Duvall. As, yeah. Um, as, and Robert Duvall is laughing. He's just laughing uncontrollably. That's a real laugh from Robert Duvall. That is not Tom Hagen laughing right. at the character. That's Robert mm-hmm. Duvall laughing at Brando. And the camera captured as it. he's mocking him. It, <laughs> and he kept it in. Yep, and and he kept it in. You know, it's it was that was the uh, the. I mean, in the novel, he yells and berates 
Johnny Fontaine, but he doesn't actually slap him or really make fun of him. Right. Uh, and then, you know, and cry like he did. Uh, he does that. That's all off the top of his head. And he did that to try to get a natural reaction out of him. Even the stray cat, which everybody assumes the cat is a part of a Godfather lore uh, where he's petting the cat. That was a stray that just happened to show up on set. Brando picked him up, put it on and uh, total animal lover. He picked him up and put him on his, his lap and kept him in there. The Colleone family wasn't supposed to have a cat that was never uh, part of the original script. He just found a stray on the set and said, you know, I like him and I'm yep. going to keep him in there. And Coppola Actually, wanted to do the best he could for uh, for his, uh, his star and keep him there. I am not a cat person at all. We have two cats. Mm-hmm. The reason that we have a cat to begin with is because of my wife pulling the Corleone card and I'm like, I, I hate cats, man. I can't stand you. Who has a cat? And she she looked at me and she actually said, Don Corleone has a cat. Because <laughs> I've made her watch this movie so many I'm like, all right, you can have a cat. <laughs> and Murph Cave. And, you know, and how could you not? I mean, how can you argue with that? It's good enough yep, for you the can. Don. It's good enough you for can. the Murph. Yeah. I, I like it. I absolutely like it. I didn't know that about you, my friend. Ooh. That's that's great. That's that's uh, see, we're all about opening up here on the shape of the mob. Sooner or later, sooner or later, your yeah. wife will pull will pull a a um go to the mattresses moment, and yep. if you you know whether they like the film or not, you, actually, my wife every time she she sees this come on the TV, she goes shopping. I'll <laughs> see you later. I'm going shopping. Yep. Okay, exactly. Because. For some reason, this this movie does not resonate with women the way it does with men, and I'm sorry if you think that's a terrible generalization. It's true. Women do not look at this film the way men do. There are women out there who do, but on a whole, they don't. And my wife is one of those ones that doesn't, and will do because she knows that she will be here for, you know, six hours. Because I don't do this on you yeah. know halfway. I, yeah, I'm I'm going one, two, and three. I'm going, you know, the saga. Oh, the, well, the saga is is free on Netflix, so I'm doing it that way and getting ahead of ourselves again. So go, yeah. go no, right ahead. True. That's I how mean, I got it really my is. No, it's true, and it really is, and it is part of the legacy of this film. You mentioned go to the mattresses, and I well, we'll get into that and how that's really become a part of the lexicon of. Uh, uh, of, of American, you know, slang and really uh, the English language in the yep. United States. I think, you know, so many scenes and so many lines are iconic when it comes to this movie. Um, but in this scene, once the Godfather is up the stairs and once they've, you know, pulled the curtain back on, you know, the lead weights that were <laughs> that were yep. hidden in the, in the uh, <laughs> uh, uh, beneath the blankets of Don Corleone, we see the Don now. He's settled in. Uh, his family comes in, his grandchildren have come in, they've made him cards, and they're all things. And you really get the family sense. But it comes back to business very quickly when you see Michael and Tom, when, excuse me, when you see Sonny and Tom and Fredo uh, and Clemenza and Tessio in the room, and they're now going to talk business with the Don with their father and bring him up to speed on exactly what's been going on while he's been convalescing in the hospital. Um, one scene, this is a very, very poignant scene in the movie, and I think a lot of people probably gloss over it, but this scene sets up so much in the movie that's about to happen. And it really is, if you really pay close attention to this scene in terms of the character development and how it's going to shape the things to come, it's amazing. It really is how 
important this scene is to the movie. And I really didn't realize that for a long time until I started to really delve into the history of this movie and the character development of this movie. And this scene really does. Carlo is Connie's husband. Carlo is shut out of the family meeting All family with, the men, with the men in the room. Carlo is essentially seen, and this is very briefly seen, where Connie is in the kitchen with her mother and Sandra, who is um, uh, who is uh, Sonny's wife, and um, Teresa, who is Tom Hagen's wife, and they're kind of they're preparing dinner and they're just going yep. about their business. And Carlo is just sitting against the wall uh, after being basically asked to leave the room by 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 Sonny, um, and that's really at the behest of the Godfather. The Godfather never really trusted Carlo. He no said to Tom Hagen at the beginning where, you know, Tom Hagen said to him, he says, your new son-in-law, we're going to give him something important. And the Don said, never. Give him a living, but never right. discuss the family business with him. And Sonny always had that uh, pre-dereliction of mistrust when it came to Carlo. He knew what his ultimate motives were. It wasn't for the good of the family. It was for the good of himself. He wanted to marry into the family to be something more important than really what he was. And he is banished from the room, and Carlos sitting against the well, wall. Well, Sonny introduced them. Exactly. Sonny did yeah. introduce them. Hey, so this was, this, yeah. Exactly. That comes out in The Godfather Part Two, which not a lot of people really know. There's an end scene, a flashback scene, where, uh, where Sonny introduces Carlo, and I think at at that point, he could see through Carlo, and I think initially yep. what happened is he saw a guy that was kind of like him, fun-loving, and probably, you know, like a... He, he's, know, one sort of of the, like a he's one of the guys character. from the hood that Sonny liked to hang out with from the old exactly. neighborhood. That he, exactly. he still kept in touch with, and, and he came to the realization over time that, that you know, Carlo's a scumbag, and it doesn't yeah. it doesn't matter. It, this this is why he, he came here to be, you know... He married my sister to become part of the family. He's, he he yeah. treats her like like garbage, which in in turn is is actually probably the way Sonny treated his wife, with with the exception of the 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 physical and emotional abuse. You know, he was out there screwing right. That's that was the way things were, I guess. And uh, but that that wasn't you know you weren't supposed to do that to his sister. You're not supposed to treat exactly. his sister like that way. Yeah, that was a do as I say, not as I do, and mm -hmm. I think that. Sonny saw that side of Carlo where Carlo was using his bookmaking, you know, uh, business to sort of, you know, push his weight around and make it seem like he was something a lot more important in the family than yep. what he was. Um, and you know we will flush is? out. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and we will flush out the, uh, the, the real, uh, disdain that Sonny had for Carlo in just a little bit, but Connie looks at Carlo and says, what's the matter with you? You know, like, you know, you look so down. You look at him and he, then he just looks at her and says, shut up and set the table, <laughs> which is, you know, it, it really is a sign of the times in terms of, you know, just how, you know, the relations between, you know, husband and wife and, and how that worked out. But uh, we'll get into that in a minute. But essentially, there is a cutaway scene shortly after that where you see Sonny and Tom and they're filling the Godfather in on what happened, um, how... And Tom Hagen really kind of takes the uh, the lead on this and says that you know the police are cracking down on all their organiz on, on their organization because of what happened. Uh, Sonny fills in the Godfather that he's going to be sending Fredo out to Las Vegas. Uh, that uh, you know Fredo needs to rest and he's still dealing with the trauma of being the one that was there when his when his father was shot and his right. own responsibility and his own guilt for not being able to do more for his dad and help him out in his time of need. So. 
Fredo, you see him kind of like slump over and give a real like, you know, kind of sheepish smile like, yeah, I'm going to go learn the casino business, you know, like, well, that's it. That's what I am now. I'm just kind of like the, the lackey of the family and I'm going to yeah. go out and, you know, and do my own thing. And, uh, you the know, so that way I'm not Typical middle child me. syndrome. Exactly. And you I'm going to go out so that way I can't cause any more problems for the family. We're going to send him out to Las Vegas where he can't, you know, where he's safe and he can't, you know, cause any more uh, problems right. for the, uh, uh, for the family. Waitresses. Um, exactly. Yep. Two at a time. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, we'll learn from, from Mo Green. But um, <laughs> in any case, the Godfather is looking and he's barely able to speak. And Marlon Brando really does play this very well. And you hear him wheezing and he's trying to say something that originally is initially, I should say, not originally, but initially is inaudible. But it really does come out when everybody in the room quiets down and his question to everybody is, where's Michael? And you see a look between James Caan and Robert Duvall where they look at each other. And the Godfather's noticing that. He's noticing that the two guys are looking at each other, and he's like, something wasn't told to me. And that's when Tom Hagen leans in and says, it was Michael who killed Salazzo. But he's safe, and he's going to work to pay you back. And at that moment, you just see the Godfather's mood slump. Right. And he just he waves off, and he just wants everybody out of the room at that point, and he wants to be alone. And you can see the disappointment on the look of the Godfather's face where he wasn't able, and you can see the guilt in the Godfather's face and just the the resignation to the point where my youngest son is now involved in this too. Right. And that's not what I wanted for him. And this is flushed out in a later scene, which I think is one of my favorite scenes in all of movies, uh, which is a scene between Michael and his father in the garden, which we'll get to in a little bit. But the Godfather shuns everyone out of the room. And at that moment, you see the scene transition to Tom and Sonny leaving the room. And Sonny is basically hot-headed. He's not taking this sitting down. He wants to bring the pride back to his father's eyes. And to do that, he feels that he's got to take out one of the mafia family heads, and that's Don Philip Tatalia, who is really sort of like the lower level of the heads of the five families. Tatalia is more of a, well, lack of a better term, we hear the Don tell him later, is a pimp. He really yep. is. He's the one that's really responsible for a lot of the brothels and a lot of the, the he's essentially a sex trafficker, I guess you'd probably say, yeah. is probably the best way, to, you know, to put it. He's not the more powerful of the fam of the, the family heads. It's really Vito and, and, and Don Barzini, who really is, is kind of like the, the, the chief rival to uh, Don Corleone, where Tatalia has always been lower level, but because he attached himself to Salazzo, he gained a little bit more prominence. And Sonny wants to go after Natalia. He wants to bring him down. He feels this is going to make his father happy and it's going to bring pride back in and it's going to show his dad that he can handle things and that he's, you know, the, the, the every bit of the leader that he ever wanted it to be. And Tom tries to, you know, talk him down off the ledge and says, look, it's not the right time. You can't just do this. You can't act off of impulse. And Sonny is still being very hot-headed and he yells at Tom and says, you know, God damn it, if I had a wartime consigliere, I won't be in this shape. Papa Jenko and look what I got, which is a yeah. reference to the, God, the Godfather's consigliere, Jenko, who was, actually was in a deleted scene in the original uh, cut of the movie where the Don and his boys, he all of dying. them, including yeah. Michael, go and they pay their respects to uh, his dying consigliere, which anybody that's seen The Godfather Part Two, um, if you're familiar with 
Frankie Carbone from Goodfellas, it's the same actor that plays, right? Not right. in The Godfather 1, but in The Godfather Part 2, that's the guy, the guy that is kind of, you know, mirroring and shadowing De Niro around a little bit. That's Jenko. That's the guy that uh, ends up being his consigliere. Um, but uh, in The Godfather film, in the original, there is a scene with Brando taking his sons to go visit him on his deathbed. And uh, that scene was cut for continuity reasons and also for time reasons, but it really is a very good scene if anybody wants to check out the deleted scenes on The Godfather if you own any of uh, the, uh, the You platforms. can find them uh, on it's YouTube. available on all of yeah. them. Absolutely. And they are available on YouTube as well if you wanted to, uh, to go in and take a look at them. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But uh, Sonny is now at the table, and he's sitting at the head where his, God, where his father would normally be. Um, and they're having Sunday dinner at... Carlo makes a reference about wanting to do more for the family, and if <laughs> Sonny just looks back, looks back at him, says, "We don't discuss business at the table." And it's a it's a repeat of a line that Connie had just fed to him, where he was talking about you know the the, the family business, and he was talking about things and just blurting out uh, you know stuff yeah. that yeah that really should have been you know really is not dinner table conversation, right? But Sonny you know is showing his immaturity as a leader. Um, and Connie kind of brings him back into uh, to where she says, you know, dad would have never, pop would have never said that. And you go, oh, you know, and, you know, Carlo makes a reference to him like, oh, shut up. And he looks at her and he says, don't you ever tell her to shut up. And that really, I think, foreshadows and, a lot. And his the, mother, uh, this, is, this is important. This is important. His yep. mother steps on him and says, don't get involved. You know, you're not Connor supposed here. to get involved between a, a wife and her husband. You know, because exactly. that's serious yeah. old school stuff. And um and that's when when he comes out with you know we don't talk about stuff 
We don't talk about business at the dinner table. Yeah, using exactly. that as an excuse. Right now, right now, Sonny is 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 just thoroughly disgusted by his brother-in-law and can't believe that you know he you know set these two up to begin with, and he knows that you know he, he's trying to let him know that that this is it for you. This you are never going to be anything more than you are now, and and that yeah. brings us to you know. The scene that that we're I, I believe we are about to to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And what that does is it does you know um, you know put into. Sorry, did I make you skip around? The, no, it's okay. No, no, no. That's fine. It really it's uh, the Godfather essentially is seen in the uh, Fredo goes upstairs and he sits with his dad and his father's just staring off into space and you can tell that's where his head is. His head is with his son Michael and he wants to make sure that not only is he safe but he's also so concerned that Michael might be in danger. This was sort of the gem of his eye, and he loved Sonny. He loved yeah. Fredo. Uh, even Tom, in his own way, loved Connie. But Michael was always his his golden child and the one yeah. that he thought was going to be the savior of the family. And it transitions very nicely. We see the Godfather staring off into space, and they play the Godfather love theme as it transitions to a countryside in Sicily. And Michael is walking through the countryside in Sicily with his two bodyguards, Fabrizio and Calo, C-A-L-O, not Carlo, but Calo, C-A-L-O. And the two of them are walking through. Don Tomasino, who is now in charge of Michael's safety, drives up and says, it's very dangerous. You shouldn't be walking out here. And he tells him that he's going to go, he's walking to Corleone. And he wants to go to his father's city where his, you know, where his father was born and his family, the Andalini family, uh, which was initially the last name of the Corleone family that was given to them at Ellis Island. And we'll get into that when we Chronicle the Godfather Part Two, but you start to see that Michael is settling into life in Sicily. He's with his bodyguards. He's essentially walking through, and he is now uh, a part of Sicilian life for the time being. While Sonny transitions and tries to get him back to America, which is really, and that's one of the, the questions that Michael asks Don Tomasino. And I love how the, the Sicilian scenes were kept true. They were kept. Uh, all the dialogue is in a Sicilian dialect, yep. uh, which uh, when I like to show off, I like to turn off the subtitles on the uh, on the bottom of the screen, and I love to be able to translate to people exactly what they're saying. The translation is usually pretty good, but there are some, uh, you know, elements of yeah. How there, there's some words that, that needed to be, you know, polished up or changed for lack of a better word. Uh, yeah, and, and the, the the actual just, just so it read correctly. Yeah, the actual subtitles are a little bit more done in the King's English than actually mm -hmm. what is the literal translation of what, what we see in um, uh, in Sicilian. Uh, but um, Michael asks Don Tomasino, and, you know, what did Sonny say when I can return? And he says, oh, no, not yet. You know, and he doesn't even give him a time frame. He just says, no, not yet. It's way too dangerous. So Michael kind of shakes his head and realizes, well, it's not going to be any time soon. <laughs> so I better, right. uh, I better just resign myself. And uh, you know he he walks and he wants to walk with his uh, uh, with his bodyguards to Corleone, and there's montages where we see you know 
his bodyguards with him. And uh, one of them, you know, one of the Fabrizio, one of them yells out, you know, to uh, some of the uh, the American soldiers that are still there in the aftermath of uh, World War Two. Uh, Take me to the American GI, Clark Gable. Yeah. You know, it's really that's a foreshadowing of Fabrizio and the treachery that he's about to commit uh, with Michael. Uh, he, that's all he wants. He wants to go to America. He wants to make a living in America and be something yep. bigger than just a local bodyguard for the local mafia hood here in uh, uh, in Sicily. Um, whereas Carlo seems very resigned to his lifestyle and is kind of content and very happy with it. Uh, but Fabrizio wants more. And that's one of the reasons why he was more corruptible in a scene we're going to chronicle in a little bit. But we see Michael go to uh, the, um, we see Michael go to uh, a cafe, an outdoor cafe. And he's essentially sitting down for what will be just like a refreshing drink with his bodyguards. And he's talking about a young woman that he saw early on. And we do see this scene where Michael was walking through the countryside and immediately he's hit by the thunderbolt, which is very Italian. That's, yeah. I will say that that's one thing that, you know, my uncles and my, my older uncles and, and, and aunts and everything would always ask me after I went out on a date with a, with a girl or whatever, they'd ask, Oh, you hit by the thunderbolt. No bone in it. Uh, and I would say, well, you know, they said, no, 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 no. You would know if you were hit by it. So um, Michael was immediately hit by it. This young woman uh, that is just the beautiful young lady wearing a purple dress and, um, and she looks like she's tending to, you know, young children oh, yeah. and that's they're in her care. And he's just he's so struck by it that by the time these guys get to the cafe, that's all they can talk about. And the owner of the cafe comes out and he sits down with them and he's having a conversation. And they're talking about a young they're talking about this young lady and he seems intrigued by it. And then they start to describe her. And all of a sudden the smile disappears from this man's face. And he becomes enraged. He gets up and, in Italian, no, non ci sono questa ragazza. And that basically means in this town, no, there's no girl like that in this town. Right. And Fabrizio realizes what's going on. Carlo's, I think, having a little bit too much wine at the table. He's not yep. really, he's not really following. Yeah, Carlo, Carlo's happens, just Carlo. You know, he's just exactly. He's, he's, you know, he's having, he's having a grand old time. He's like, hey, yep. I'm not going to get a chance to rest, so I'm going to sit down. I'm going to have some wine. I'm going to just relax. Yep. Uh, but Fabrizio realizes what might be going on here. So Fabrizio downs his drink and tells Michael, "Come on, we got to get out of here." And Michael just <laughs> looks at him, like, "What's going on?" And he says. Slovakia, meaning that that's his daughter. And Michael just kind of closes his eyes, nods his head, and he tells Fabrizio, and he goes, Chiamato, which means call him. And Fabrizio's trying to tell him, no, what the hell are you talking about? He's going to come back. He's going to kill you. And he says, no, no, Chiamato. And you see Michael's personality has completely, completely changed <laughs> from when we first saw him. <laughs> Fabrizio grabs the gun, which I love. He grabs the gun. He's not going to go in there without being armed because yep. he knows what could possibly happen. And Vitelli, which is the, the name of the gentleman, comes out with presumably, you've got to assume that these two are his sons. And he comes out. He's reluctant. You can hear things banging in the background. He is really, really angry because he's thinking that this guy wants to get his daughter into bed. And that's it. That's all he wants. And, and right. he's just this this hood that I can't stand. Michael realizes that he has disrespected him, and that's not what his intention was. And Michael wants to speak to uh, Vitelli and 
smooth the situation over. And this is originally originally this was written in Sicilian. Um, and in, if you take a look at the scene in, in the novel. Michael does not have Fabrizio translate for him. Michael speaks Sicilian fluently. Al Pacino did not speak Italian well at all. He tried He tried memorizing his lines and just could not do it. It didn't come across authentic enough right. to pass off. So it was actually Pacino's idea, and he says, well, why don't I have one of the bodyguards translate it for me? Maybe it'll, it'll work out better. Coppola loved the idea, and it really, I think it was actually superior to what you saw in the novel. It made Michael a fish out of water, but someone wanna, that was so comfortable in his leadership. Go ahead. Yeah. I want to ask you something. I heard that, that Puzo's Italian was actually terrible in, it the, was. No, it in the novel. Was. It, it is complete. It, it, it's almost like you know reading Klingon. Is that true? Yeah. It really is. Uh, it, I, I grew up in I grew it. up in Middletown, Connecticut, where you have to know Italian. Um, yeah. It uh it it is it's a prerequisite at, at yeah. you know Catholic schools. It's even taught, and um yeah. and so I understand it when it's spoken to me. If you're an yep. Italian grandmother and you're yelling, I speak I understand it fluently. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um the, but no, I can't read it or anything. So I, I wasn't sure. So that's true. The the Italian in the book is terrible. Yeah, the Italian in the book is actually it's a very guttural lower level. Uh, Sicilian dialect, I guess is the best way for me to put it. Um, it's It would be the equivalent of slang English, um, whereas if you speak a very guttural, slangy type English, uh, mm-hmm. this would really be what the a very guttural Southern Italian dialect would be. Um, Puzo, and a lot of that is really not so much Puzo. It's really just the dialect that they would have spoken, but a lot of it is phonetically spelt in order so that way people could really understand how these these terms were pronounced. There is not a lot of actual Italian prose in the Godfather novel. He English he, he translates it into English so people can read it. Um, but in the, in terms of what the, the Sicilian translation would be, yeah, it is. It's a very very guttural, uh, you know, part of that. And Puzo okay. would be the first to admit posthumously, obviously, but uh, Puzo would be the first to admit that his Italian wasn't as strong as it needed to be. That was one of the areas he really needed to research uh, going into this novel. It wasn't something where he was able to uh, to, to fit into it. But grammatical Italian uh, and scholars of the language would look at this and they would cringe with every breath in their body because it's just it's so opposite of what uh, the Italian language really should be and how it should be spoken. Uh, even in the movie, uh, Al Lettieri has a very... Uh, guttural uh, Sicilian dialect that's very difficult to understand for grammatical Italian. I understood it because my family is from the south and it's close to Sicily. My family is not Sicilian, but it is close enough to Sicily where I could get by with a lot of what he was saying. Uh, That's why when I chronicled the story last week, I used to translate that scene for my friends all the time. They would wonder what he's saying because you couldn't turn on subtitles for that scene. It was done for a reason that way and I could translate it fluently. So that's a good transition into that in terms of some of the um, the Italian that you see in the Sicilian montage. But Michael shows his leadership, I think, in this for the first time where he demands that Fabrizio bring the older gentleman back out and he wants to have a talk with him. And through Fabrizio, he tells him that he's an American hiding in Sicily. He gives him information that normally uh, a guy that really didn't care would not give would not bring forward 
And he lets Vitelli know that he knows, he means no disrespect. I saw your daughter. I just think she's beautiful. I would like to meet her with all respect from your family, under the supervision of your family. Uh, I'm not going behind your back. My intention is not to woo her or get her into bed. My intention is to be honorable in possibly asking for your daughter's hand in marriage. And he even says that. If If anybody knew what I was telling you, your daughter would lose a father instead of gaining a husband. <laughs> and Fabrizio looks right. at him like, so what are you nuts? You're going to actually say that to him? And he tells him, tell him, you know, tell him what I told you. And Vitelli, you know, grabs his suspenders and he just kind of resigns himself to the fact that, you know, this young man is not the disrespectful creature that maybe I thought he was. And he relents and he invites him to his home in in Sicily, in the hills of Sicily on a Sunday for dinner. And you see Michael Big show deal. up. He, Exactly. This is a huge deal. The whole, whole family is there. And, uh, you know, typical Sicilian, you know, typical old school Italian. Michael's sitting at one end of the table. Apollonia is sitting at the the other side of the table. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't have much interaction. Uh, Michael brings her a gift. Uh, Apollonia actually has to look at her mother for permission to accept it and open it. Uh, I mean, this is really, this is old, old school courting here. You had to really want it back in the day. You had to really know. You had to work for it. You had to put in a lot of work. You had to put in a lot of work. Even when they're supposedly just taking a harmless walk and getting to know one another and assumingly talking, you see the scene where Michael and Apollonia are walking and, you know, just a few steps behind are mm-hmm. this coalition of old ladies that's there to keep that's their it. eye on them. And that, of course, you know, Michael's bodyguards with the shotguns are there as well. So Michael wasn't going to get away with anything, whether it be with the guys with the shotguns or whether it be with the old ladies watching. This was under strict, strict I'd rather face the guys but, with the shotguns. Believe me, I know the, yeah. the, the, the gaggle of little old Italian ladies. No, 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 I've been there. Yeah. Been there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you see, so Michael is settling into his life in Sicily. And it almost looks like he's settling into a life that he believes is never going to end. He, this is how he's going to be yeah. for quite a while. And if he does get back to the United States, it's going to be, uh, you know, having Apollonia as his wife on his arm and being his Italian mafia wife, basically, uh, for lack of a better term. And this is yeah. how he's going to live his life. The transition back to America is interesting because it transitions with Kay Adams arriving at the Corleone family compound. And she comes out, and she's greeted at Tom by the gate. And Tom basically says to her, okay, you should have called. What are you doing here? And she's trying to reach Michael. And you can really see the desperation and the, just the, I think the despair in her in her face. Diane Keaton really plays this role well uh, because she's such a fish out of water with this family, doesn't understand the Sicilian-Italian tradition, and all she's trying to do is just reach her boyfriend, the guy that she went to college with, the one that she was going to start a life with who essentially shunned her aside after his father was the, the attempted murder of, of his father. And she tries to get a message to him, and Tom basically says, well, look, I can't, I can't accept that. In a court of law, they can prove I have knowledge of his whereabouts, and they're trying to protect his um, his uh, um, his identity, and they're trying to protect his whereabouts. So Kay, at this point, has almost transitioned into an afterthought, and she's no longer going to be in Michael's plans. And you start to see the switch of how the Godfather's, you know, life has has changed now with Sonny being more of the active head of the family and the Godfather still convalescing and Tom taking a more active role and advising Sonny in terms of the best things to do. 
we transition to a scene now where, and this is a scene that I think we, uh, you know, had started to go down, uh, but we had gotten sidetracked with the Sicilian Coda, and that is um, a scene where Connie picks up the phone. She's home. She's pregnant with with her uh, with her first child, right. and she picks up the phone and is the voice of a woman on the other end, and she basically tells her, "Is Carlo there?" And oh well, you know, this is a friend of Carlo's. Tell him I can't make it until later. And we later find out that this is a setup, but it's actually it's enough to get Connie's blood boiling, and she goes into Carlo, who's getting ready, assumingly it looks like he's getting ready for a date, and most likely he probably was going to see this woman, but he told her to call the house for all due purposes yep. to get Connie up, you know, you know, to get Connie up and, and, uh, uh, and upset. And, you know, it, she sees this, she sees this, you know, blatant disregard for her own, um, respect. Carlo has essentially no respect for her any longer. She's just right. there and she's just his, his a horse even for call him. him at the house now. Exactly. And you know, and there's a scene where Carlo and her go back and forth and they yell and Connie starts breaking things in the house and you know, it's it's, she it's has a, 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 a Exactly. She has a tantrum. She really, really goes into a uh, into a tantrum. And it leads into one of the more violent scenes in uh, in The Godfather, and I will in get movie into history. you know a little bit, and really in movie history, yeah. and a scene that was inspired by another classic, which had just been filmed just a few years earlier. But prior to this, we flush out the big reason why Sonny is so disdainful of Carlo, and it's a scene where Sonny is fooling around with Lucy Mancini, who's one of <laughs> one of uh, one of Connie's friends, one of her bridesmaids at the uh, yeah. at, at the wedding. Um, and he comes downstairs, and he's basically done his thing with Lucy in the in the, uh, in the apartment. And he says, "I'm going to go see my sister." And Sonny goes over to his bodyguards and has them take her to Connie's apartment, to Connie and Carlo's apartment. And Connie comes in, and she's got a welt on the side of her face, and she looks like she's been roughed up a little bit. Um, and the fact that she's been roughed up a little bit is something that does not sit well with with uh, Sonny. And Sonny needs no explanation as to how she got this way. Um, he bites his knuckle, and and Connie pleads with him, no, don't, it was my fault, I started it. She's trying not to bag yep. Carlo because she does, she knows Sonny's temper, and she knows he'll take it to the next level, and she'd rather be a battered wife than a widow. And at that point, Sonny tries to calm her down. He says, I'm just going to go get doctor. I'm going to get somebody to come and look at you. And Sonny leaves, and he finds Carlo in front of his bookmaking business, sitting there nonchalant, like nothing is wrong. Like, Which is the stoop. Uh, you know, exactly. And he sits on the stoop, and Sonny gets out and fires a broomstick handle, which, by the way, was not part of the original script. These two right. did not we, like we, one another. We went, we went all over that, that last week. Night. And yep. he fires a broom handle at him, and it's a pretty brutal, you know, uh, beating scene where Sonny just beats the hell out of Carlo, kicks him in the face, kicks him in the ribs, and says, if you touch my sister again, I'll kill you. Yep. That's what makes this scene so much of a bold setup, where I had, you know, mentioned before that, um, you know, the Godfather was, uh, was where Sonny um, had or Connie had, you know, essentially been the victim of a setup. That's it. This was in retaliation to that scene. 
uh, Carlo had basically set up Sonny. At that moment, when Sonny had humiliated him and kicked him and left him essentially wet in a gutter In front of all the people he had, that, that he had been trying to build up some respect exactly, for all this time. Exactly, in front of everybody that he did business with. Now this essentially ruined him. It made him look terrible. And he was not able to save face anymore. Carlo was really, really angry. And he arranges to set up Sonny. And this was part of the setup. He beats Sonny, who's pregnant and just looking so disheveled and so disgusted. And you don't actually see him hit, and I think it actually does work better for the scene where oh, you sure. see Carlo enter the uh, the bathroom, he kicks the door in, and you just hear this, this whacking sound, which you can essentially, you know, put the two... You can essentially put the uh, the pieces together that he's, he's hitting her with belt the belt off, that he's now he's taken freaking, off, and yeah. you know it, exactly. And he's just this scene was actually one of the scenes that uh, Coppola actually had to work with a violence coordinator as well. He was not comfortable doing this scene at oh, all. God, Tommy yeah. Shire is his sister, and naturally it was something very difficult uh, for him to even film a scene where his sister was being physically abused. Um, so he actually did work with a violence coordinator. He actually rehearsed it with. Um, with his uh, uh, with his nephew Geo <laughs> and Talia, oh, wow. uh, you know, and his nephew Geo was the one that was you know coming in and hitting her with the uh, uh, with the belt, and uh, Talia was you know, breaking all the bric-a-brac around her, and mm-hmm. so it was it was interesting the way the scene kind of came down, um, but it did also lead to some of the the negativity um, that you see in the next scene where Sonny gets a phone call from Connie, presumably on the height of Carlo telling him that that uh, uh, Carlo has, has beat her. And you see the rage in Sonny's face. Yeah. Puts it on the phone, yells, son of a bitch, a couple of times, get in, gets into his car, uh, which is, by the way, if I ever hit the lottery, I am buying a refurbished version of this. I absolutely love no that kidding. car. No kidding. The 1941 Lincoln Zephyr, which is just, I really, oh. I mean, just, if you are a car buff, I mean, come on. I mean, that was like my dream right. car growing up and seeing that. That car is unbelievable. The grill with the just, uh, awesome. Yeah. Just really, really awesome car. And he gets into it, and he's heading for, you're assuming that he's heading for Connie's apartment. He's going to go check and see how she's doing. Um, in the novel, it does flush out that he's not going to kill Carlo at that moment. He's more concerned with his sister, and he's going to get to Carlo eventually. I mean, and you know that there's no chance that Carlo's going to live through this. But his main right. goal right now is to is to take care of his sister and get her back to the hospital, to get her back to the house where she can be cared for by her mother and, and everybody around her. So James Conn is sunny now, is in the car. He's driving out. And uh, another little tidbit that I picked up, um, while Sonny is driving in his car, where he's driving toward the causeway on his way to pick up Connie, uh, he's got the radio on, and you can hear a ball game in the background. Uh, Anybody uh, that is familiar with baseball will know the game that he's listening to. And it's the October 3rd, 1951 radio broadcast of Russ Hodges calling the Dodgers versus the Giants playoff which is about a half inning before Bobby Thompson shot heard around the world and Russ yelling, the Giants won the pennant! The Giants won the pennant! That's the game he's listening to. Um, and that was at the behest of uh, of James Kahn, actually. He was just he was such a big baseball fan, and he had loved that. And says, imagine being able to listen to that live. Uh, he had suggested that to Coppola. It fit well enough in the timeline where they could do it. Yep. So uh, he put that in there, and that was uh, you know his his nod to uh, to James Kahn. So Kahn got a chance to listen to that um, as his really last act on earth, really, <laughs> um, with Sonny Corleone. He's listening to that game. And he drives up to the toll booth, 
and everybody pretty much knows, anybody who's seen The Godfather knows what's coming next. One of the more brutal murder scenes, I think, in movie history, and was really inspired, you talk about violence, um, it's a movie to this it's a scene so graphic to this day it gets edited on on free television they they don't show the final um the final spray spray of of bullets as he's lying there they edit that out that's that's how graphic it it, it really is exactly and um he is and sonny is is murdered um and is brutally murdered shot so many times. James Conn would later describe that he was fitted with 147 squibs to the point wow. where a, 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 a equipment guy was actually rigging him up with the squibs and said, I've never put this many squibs on a person before in my life. To which Conn replied to him, I don't think it was necessary for you to tell me that now. <laughs> <laughs> and it was filmed, obviously, it was filmed in one take. Uh, the, the squibs, they weren't going to be able to ever rig him up again. Conn said mm-hmm. it. He said, I can only do this once. And they knew they had one shot to get it, and it really was brilliantly filmed. Um, very much inspired by uh, some of the uh, the scenes that Coppola described that he filmed this scene with two directors in mind. Akira Kurosawa, who was really the father of violent films in Japan, who if you take yep. a look at some of the stuff that he did with squib work, it really was far ahead of its time. Kurosawa was really, really amazing at being able to do scenes like this. But mostly it was... Um, modeled after the death scene in uh, Bonnie and Clyde by Arthur Penn, who had done this with the squib work and really was the first to show a violent killing on screen. If you take a look at a lot of the old school movies and a lot of the old gangster movies, when these guys were shot, there wasn't even a splatter of blood. Uh, They were just shot. They fell to the ground. uh, And you saw a trickle of blood on their white shirt. Yeah, you might see a little bit, and even sometimes that wouldn't pass the, yeah, the earlier true. versions of these movies. A lot of times that didn't even pass the uh, um, uh, the muster test for the uh, for the censors. So Sonny is brutally gunned down. Um, his bodyguards show up late. Well, I tell you, it's a good thing they were there to, to, to help. Uh, you know, uh, they they showed up after everything was done and over with. But there is a part of this movie that really foreshadows uh, what this really meant and that's right before the hitmen take off one of the hitmen rears back and kicks Sonny in the face and it's meant to disfigure him even more but it's also meant as an insult and that's a hint to the audience of who set this up because if you recall in the earlier scene when Sonny beat the hell out of Carlo one of the things that he did was kick him in the face. And that was, if you read the novel, that was one of the prerequisites of Carlo setting up Sonny. I want him kicked in the face. I don't care what you have to do, but kick him in the face uh, before you uh, you leave him. And that was that was really, uh, you know, the foreshadowing for the audience of who was behind this, this brutal murder. In one of the most touching scenes, in the movie, a transition, you see Sonny's dead body lying in the gutter of the causeway, um, and he is, he's, you know, mutilated beyond belief, and it transitions to Tom Hagen sitting alone in the room, having a drink, waiting to go upstairs to get the courage to tell Don Corleone that his son has been brutally murdered. And you see Vito walking downstairs, and he's, you know, he's kind of punched over, and he's still convalescing, but he's much better than he was when the last time we saw him. And he sits down, and he knows that something's on Tom's mind. And 
I think brilliantly played by Duvall here. I think yeah. really you take a look at the, the – the, I don't think he could have done this any better. Uh, it fit the character. It fit the mood. Uh, he wasn't sobbing uncontrollably. He wasn't just a, a, an absolute wreck. Don't forget, he was the closest to Sonny. Sonny was the one that took him in. Tom Hagen is taking this very, very hard uh, right. with the murder, probably harder than he would have for the death of any other brother in this film. Sonny was someone that he really looked to um, as his protector, and he has to be the one to deliver the news to the Godfather. He, Brando is looking at him, and he says, you know, what's wrong? And Hagen looks back at him, and with tears in his eyes and a little bit of a choke in his throat, he looks at him and says, they shot Sonny on the causeway, and he's dead. And Brando acts this perfectly as well, just a sigh of resignation. And you can see he's on the verge of tears, but he's not going to break down and he's not going to break who he is. He tells him, matter of fact, that he wants him to contact the um, uh, the undertaker and that he wants an inquiry made to the heads of the five families. And this stops now because he also realizes at this moment, Vito meaning, that yep. his death, <clears throat> that Sonny's death could mean the death of Michael. And that's something he is not going to take the chance of. Right. He may have lost Sonny. He resigned himself to the fact that this was something that could have happened, but he is not going to lose Michael. And he wants the heads of the five families to know that right now. So they do transition to this and in a scene where, you know, the Don and then I want to go into every nook and cranny because we are going down that rabbit hole that we went towards yeah. the last time, my friend. But, um, uh, a brilliantly acted scene where Marlon Brando is looking over the dead body of his son and he just sees the brutality of how, how terrible uh, the murder was and he just looks at him and says, look how they massacred my boy. Just, uh, just really, really well acted by uh, by Brando. And uh, right. later, uh, you know, uh, Duval would say that uh, he was so in awe of Brando who was actually laughing and joking around and eating a uh, uh, actual container of, uh, of squid that he got from a local restaurant where they were filming this movie and he actually had the container in his hand while they were filming this you don't see it but he does and just his he looked like he was so unprepared for this scene and then when Coppola said you know action he just turned into this grieving father that was just in, and that's one thing that Robert Duvall had said wow. he found a newfound respect for Marlon Brando that day when he filmed that scene it was just phenomenal and remarkable but at this point Word now has gotten back to Michael, Don Tomasino, and they cut back to uh, Sicily, and word has gotten back to Michael in Sicily that his brother has been brutally murdered. He is now the husband of Apollonia, and Michael realizes now that his life is in danger as well, and the only thing that can be safe for him is to really move her back to to, uh, America. to America. And Don Tomasino says, we're going to move you to uh, the village of Syracuse, which is actually where the Sicilian scenes were filmed. Corleone was already too industrialized and too modernized for this to be filmed and be realistic uh, to uh, the time period. So they filmed in Syracuse, which was a little bit more old school at that point. Um, and that's so the nod to Syracuse in is not just something that they pulled out of thin air. That's where they had to, uh, to film. So they put that name in there for as a result of that. And you see Michael preparing. He's preparing to head to Syracuse with his wife. And it's implied that from Syracuse, they'll make arrangements to bring them to uh, to the United States. And Michael is 
ready to do that. He goes, you know, toward the uh, the car and Apollonia as he's been teaching her to drive and he wants and she wants to surprise him by driving to to him and driving him uh mm-hmm. to uh, uh to Syracuse and show what a good driver she is. And Michael looks at his bodyguard and says, Fabrizio, dove vai? And Fabrizio looks at him with a look of treachery and he looks at Michael, these two eyes locked, he runs off as a coward. And now you know exactly what's coming. Yep. And, and, you know, Pacino doesn't even get it out of his mouth. Michael doesn't even get out of Apollonia. Watch out. And the car explodes. And Michael's wife has been murdered in a bomb that was meant for Michael. Okay. Uh, no question about it. But they feel that they've weakened him enough to that point where his wife was the one that had to, to suffer uh, death at that point. And at that moment, you really, really feel for the character of Michael. You feel for the character of Apollonia, but you really realize what's about to come. And that was the moment where Michael became hardened and he became paranoid. And from that moment on, Michael would never trust or really fully love anyone ever again. At that moment, his life was all about revenge and it was all about getting even for the wrongs that were done to him. And I think that is the turning point in Michael's life. And Murph, I, uh, you know, we've, I've been, you know, <laughs> I've been going on and on about some of these scenes here. Um, I've always felt that that was the turning point in Michael's life. Do you agree with that? With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm sorry. Say that again. 
Oh, it's okay. <laughs> no problem. Uh, what I was saying is uh, uh, the um, this, this scene to me has always been uh, the transition, I think, and the turning point in Michael's life. This is what hardened him oh, yeah. uh, and really made him the character that we saw in the subsequent movies, really right up until the latter part of part three, where we start to see a softening of Michael and a return to the way he was in the early part of the original Godfather. Uh, this really, I think, hardened him to the point where he did not really fully love or trust anybody ever again. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, I think this is one of those scenes that you always look back in the saga of the Godfather and wonder how this happened. Do you agree with that? Do you think that this was the turning point in Michael's life? Yeah, it, it really was. It was the, it, it was the the moment that he, that he realized that if he trusts anyone, I mean, Fabrizio is is his closest friend there. One of his two closest friends there. It, you you can't trust anyone in this life, in this business, right. because there, there's always a, you know, there's always the devil sitting on their shoulder, offering right. them more or what they right. want. Uh, again, we go we go back to. Um, so many different um, genres in 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 this in this life that that you 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 pay you pay your people enough so they don't want more but they're they're still hungry. Fabrizio wanted more. He wanted he yeah. wanted to be the one to go back to America, and right. Barzini, um, his family uh, offered him that. You take care of this for us, and we will set you up in America, and and that's that that was the payoff for him to kill Michael, and uh, right. and and that at at that point Michael realized that there is nobody outside of your family that you can trust, right, and, and that that plays out more and more in 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 this film, and of course in two, when yeah. when he tells his his brother, you know he he becomes his father here, Sonny. Sonny, his his father had told Sonny, you know, never never tell anybody outside of the family what you're thinking ever. And Michael right. mirrors that in two in talking to uh, his brother and Mo when they're when they're talking about Mo Green. Do, don't don't take sides against the family. The family is the is is all. It is the only the only people that you can trust are named Corleone. Yeah, it truly is. And that's essentially how the movie transitions. We look back to it right after Apollonia's murder, the scene transitions to a meeting with the Godfather, who is in ailing health, but still healthy enough to command some respect in the room. And he's meeting with the heads of the five families. That's when we see, we meet Don Barzini, uh, who we only saw in the opening, uh, you know, wedding scene, just, you know, being there with, uh, you know, the, didn't have any dialogue. Richard, the late Richard Conti uh, plays uh, Don Barzini and uh, really a, a great character actor of his time. This was a, a big role for uh, for him. And he was a, a relatively well-known, he was actually more well-known than a lot of the guys that were in The Godfather, yeah. believe it or not. He's kind of an afterthought if now. If you, if you look Richard down at this, at this movie, the the, the the yep. small character parts are played by much bigger actors than than were cast as the main characters of this film. Yeah, it, it, it's brilliant. Yep, they truly, truly were. And um, uh, you know, and the Don is basically trying to negotiate now with uh, he's he's trying to negotiate a ceasefire with this you know group of 
heads of the five families, uh, and he wants to do it to protect his son. And he even says it in the uh, in, in the, the closing, uh, you know, uh, in his closing soliloquy in that uh, in that movie, um, or in that scene, I should say, where everybody's going around the table and uh, they're talking about the drug business. And Don Corleone was so against being able to uh, bring his family into this. Uh, but they resign the fact that this is the wave of the future. This is how things are going to be. And he really realizes at this meeting that Barzini controlled Tatalia. He controlled right. Cuneo. He controlled all of these uh, Stracci, and he controlled all of these guys um, that were sitting at the table. And and the Don in in the, the uh, in the, the car when he had left and. Tom Hagen is trying to prep him for some of the things that are about to come. He realizes it, and he names Barzini as his yeah. as his main nemesis, and he knew that. And at this point, Michael has had, he's had arrangements to make, bring Michael back safely. That was part of the agreement that he had to make. It was a point of weakness for him. You want Michael to be okay? You want us to bring? You want to be able to bring your son back? We're going to kill him unless you do what you want us to do. And the yeah. Don had no choice. He was that committed to saving the life of his son that he would do something that he originally had absolutely despised to do. And he does. Michael comes back. Uh, you see Michael in a much more hardened, um, much more, uh, um, I think, uh, worldly, stoic and yeah. reasonable uh, Michael than you saw where he had a little bit more of, uh, it was never really a fun-loving character, but you saw a side to him uh, that had a warmth to it. Uh, there's really no warmth to the Michael character when uh, he comes back. No. Even in his dealings where he tracks down Kay and realizes, I need a wife and a family to carry on my name. It's almost like, well, Apollonia is not here. Uh, I need to find Kay. And if Kay's available, I'm going to do everything that I can to make her my wife. But you almost get the impression that it's more done for business than it is for actual love. And I think there was always a love between the Michael and the Kay characters. There's no question about it. She was always the love of his life. But at this point, Michael was so hardened and so... Um, disillusioned by life that he didn't even feel that love for her anymore. This was business more than it was actual love, uh, whereas you can still see the love that Kay had for Michael uh, when he shows up and, and you see the two of them and how hurt she was by how he had treated her and how things had happened between them. And Michael being the ever prominent businessman was able to convince Kay that, no, this is not how it's going to be in the future. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the man that you want me to believe. Right. I'm going to make My this father's family ways legitimate. Doing things are over. Exactly. I'm going to, in, in uh, what was it, in five years, the Colleone family is going to be completely legitimate, which is a line that comes back to haunt him in part two. Mm-hmm. We won't get into that right now. But Michael essentially settles into life as the, as the, as the Don. But he's a much lesser Don than his father was, at least for the time being, because at that point, Italia and Barzini have much more clout in the New York families than than the Colleone family does have at that point, which was never the case. The Colleone family was always the gold standard. They were always the highest level of, uh, they were the last word, essentially. And now their position has been severely, severely weakened to the point where guys like Clemenza and Tessio are questioning Michael's leadership. It doesn't seem like he's doing anything to better the cause of the family. But Michael's got a plan in his mind, and he's playing it out. He's asking the guys that are around him to trust him in his business and one of them does, one of them doesn't. We'll get into that in a second. But basically, 
you can see the Don as being more, he's more and more removed and just more and more detached from the family business. He's aging. He knows he probably doesn't have long to live. His health is failing. And he's transitioning that leadership to Michael. But there's still such a disdain for having to transition this to Michael for him that he doesn't fully want to admit that Michael has to take the reins of the family. He still wants to maintain a little bit of that control to make it seem like I didn't dump all of this on my son's shoulders. Yep. And we really see that in the scene with uh, Michael and his father in the garden uh, right before the Don passes away. And I think this, to me, is the most poignant scene. It's really my favorite scene in all of movies, yeah. uh, where Michael and and his father are talking in the garden about how the Don never wanted this for him. And he wanted him to be a senator. He wanted him to be a governor. He yeah. wanted him to be someone, that, another Petson Avanza. And there's also a part of the Don that's still hanging on to the reins where he's saying, don't forget, this guy is going to come to you as a, you know, check all the phone records. He's still trying to give and impart wisdom to make it seem like he hasn't entrusted all of this onto Michael and hasn't given it completely to him. Uh, one of the best scenes I ever, I could go on and on about this scene uh, because that's how much I love it. Uh, but um, this really, I think, is the passing of the torch. I think it really is not yeah. just the symbolic passing of the torch, but I really do believe this is the moment where the Don relinquishes control uh, to Michael and puts it completely in his hands, despite of the fact that he never wanted to do it. This is the scene where Michael becomes a godfather. Yeah, w w that it, you, you can see the pain on on the godfather's face in in handing this over. He he knew this was going to be Sonny's life, and you know he he had already resigned himself to the fact that that it it wasn't. Fredo's Fredo wasn't going to be able to do this and it, it really pained him that this was going on but Michael had convinced him in these talks that they were having that that we don't see that he does have a plan he is going to make um this family legitimate in the way that that his father probably wanted to do um he wasn't his father wasn't in, involved in in drugs he wasn't involved in human trafficking the way, you know, Tatalia the pimp was. And, you know, he already wanted to hand the reins to Michael as a, you know, as the head of an empire, not the head of a mafia family. And right. and that went out the window. And Michael, but he knew that Michael was going to, to see his dream through, that he had a plan and, and moving out west is it was part of this plan and that Tessio and Clemenza needed to trust Michael. Yeah, absolutely. And you see elements of that where in, in the scene where uh, Michael was now sitting in his father's chair, he's he's the head of this family and yep. he is the one that's responsible for its you know, survival. He's the one that's responsible for all of it. And that to me is really, really, I think a very big, um, I, I think it's a very, very big moment for the both of them. Uh, because what it does is it really, I think gives light to a lot of what, um, is about to come. And yeah. you see the characters of Clemenza and Tessio trying to make sense of what you know, the Godfather has, has done here. And how could they you, wanna... you know, turn this, this scene over to to Michael? And basically, you know, you're still alive, Godfather. They're still going to him. And the Godfather is trying to tell them, no, Michael is the head of the family now. And 
it's almost like they try to set you up for a little bit of uh, uh, a little bit of trickery uh, because it almost looks like Tessio is the man that really trusts Michael a little bit more, and Clemenza is more of the hot-headed guy that can easily be influenced, and it's actually yep. the other way around. <laughs> uh, it really is actually the other way around. Um, in the interest of time, uh, we'll try to kind of you know bring all this together in, in, a, in a method that I think is going to be good for everyone uh, to do that. Uh, the Godfather, um, Vito Colleone, uh, essentially passes on, uh, and he passes away uh, very shortly after handing the reins over to Michael and then telling him that you know he needs to watch out for traitors that are lining up you know, against him, that Barzini and the Tatalia family are going to come after him. They're going to come after him with everything they've got. And at this point, the Godfather does pass away. This is a scene that was, and you touched on this earlier, Murph, uh, this is a scene that was very much ad-libbed. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Don were played by Marlon Brando, uh, couldn't yep. get the child to play with him. Uh, that's why Michael's name was actually, Michael's son's name was actually Anthony in this movie. He's playing with his grandson in the, uh, um, in the garden, and originally in the novel, uh, his name was not Anthony, but um, he ends up being Anthony in this because the little kid was named Anthony, and it was the only way that they could get him to respond was yep. by his own name. <laughs> so Michael's uh, son was named Anthony for that reason, and the Don is trying to play with him. He puts the lemon, uh, the, excuse me, the orange wedge in his mouth, and he's making, you know, trying to, to chase him around, and the Godfather keels over in the garden, and he is now gone. And Michael has now lost another piece of his life. He's lost his wife, he's lost his brother, and now he's lost his father. And now it's upon Michael to take on the mantle of the of the family. And with the godfather out of the way, it's like the the capital regimes now have to motive they have to mobilize and they have to find out where their future is going to be. Without the godfather, they don't believe that Michael has the 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 vision or the yep. guts, really, to be the leader For that the his father was. Exactly. You know, he, again, he, he, he didn't put the time in. Right. He, 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 it's not like Sonny. You know, Sonny yeah. grew up in the family business. Michael right. didn't. Michael was, yep. you know, Joe College. Exactly. And not only was he Joe College, but he was also someone that they believed was not capable of being able to think the way gangsters think. You know, Michael was more of a reasonable type person. He was more business minded um, in terms of the white collar, <laughs> uh, you know, method of business rather than the <laughs> yep. blue collar method of business, uh, where his father was a very shrewd and very astute businessman, but a different way. And you actually do see, though, that to me, this is really a lesson in the two capital regimes. Tessio being, and, and Michael says it to, uh, to Tessio, where it, well, he says to Tom about Tessio, it was a smart move. Tessio was always smarter. Tessio recognizes smarter. that Michael is not going to be the guy that he believes he can be. He hasn't completely pegged wrong, but at the same time, he doesn't you know, believe that that's, that's the case, and he sells Michael out to Barzini and says, yep. I'll help you, set me up with a family, give me what I want, and I'll make sure uh, that I leave what Michael his father, to... The, the last conversation they might have had, his father warned mm-hmm. him of. Exactly. Don't forget, the person that comes to you with this Barzini meeting, he's the traitor. He's the traitor. And, and it almost looks like Clemenza is the guy that would be more easily susceptible to that, but Clemenza is actually more emotionally tied 
to the Corleones than Tessio is. And it's that emotion and that love that he had for the Don and for his children that prevented him from from betraying him because I think they probably both thought the same way. I think both Tessio and Clemenza had a lot of doubts about whether or not Michael was going to be able to do that. I don't think Clemenza saw Michael and said, nah, this kid's smarter than I think he is. But I think it was out of pure loyalty that Clemenza just did not, um, you know, sell out Michael to, uh, to the Barzini family. Whereas Tessio looked at it from more of a business perspective and just said that this is the way it has to be. Michael is very calm at his father's funeral, and he's very calculated. doesn't show a whole lot of emotion, uh, doesn't show a whole lot of uh, fear and a lot of paranoia. He seems like a guy that's very, very much in tune with what he needs to do, and he has a plan in place, and that plan is to eliminate his enemies and eliminate everyone around him. And this is really, I think, something that sticks with Michael all throughout his life. At this point, he realizes that in order to get done what I need to get done, I need to eliminate all of my enemies. And you see that in The Godfather Part Two as well. I think he just becomes so paranoid with life that he doesn't trust anyone around him, and he wants to eliminate everybody that could be a threat. Um, And he does so in one of the finest film scenes, I think, in movie history, the climax of this movie is just tremendous. It really, really is tremendous. It's a baptism scene where Michael has agreed to become the godfather to Connie and Carlo's baby. And the baptism scene was actually filmed in two churches. The interior shots were filmed at St. Patrick's Old Cathedral in New York City. The exterior shots where Michael was coming out and they're holding the baby and Connie and Carlo and everybody are there, that was actually filmed in Staten Island. That was on Mount Loretto Church in Pleasant Plains. So it was filmed in two different locations. Locations. Uh, but the, in, the, the internal scene um, was filmed in St. Patrick's Old Cathedral, and the baby that was baptized in this movie is actually Sofia Coppola, <laughs> right. who ended up playing Mary in Godfather Part Three. went on to a very uh, good career as a uh, director, not so much as an actress, but we'll get into that mm. in a little bit. Uh, but uh, really, you know, followed in her father's footsteps to a certain point. I don't know if she ever really obtained his level of, of of brilliance, but she is a very, very good director and uh, has gone on to uh, to direct several great films. But this was her first film uh, as an infant, but it was her first film. Um, yep. And um, in this scene, it's intercut with Michael standing before the altar, professing to be godfather to Connie and Carlo's baby, but really he's actually professing to be godfather of his mafia family. And the way he's doing that is at the same time as he's standing there professing to be the godfather, he's also ordering the hit of all of the uh, other family's enemies, starting with Don Barzini to Don Philip Tatalia to Mo Green out in Las Vegas, who Michael offered to buy out from his business uh, that was, you know, uh, you know, really controlling Fredo. He eliminates Mo Green with a bullet through the eye, which really is a nod to how Bugsy Siegel was killed. Uh, it's really, it's very, yeah. Fuso really did a great job with, with this, and Coppola does this phenomenally, but this was well written in the novel as well. And I don't want to give all the credit to just the, uh, the screenplay, which was a phenomenal. But um, Puzo does a great job with alliteration and with uh, um, you know, a lot of symbolism here as well. So Michael is standing witness as godfather to Connie and Carlo's baby, but he's also consolidating his control in the New York City mafia and his and essentially um, becoming the most powerful of the heads of the five families by eliminating all of the heads. And you see that with Michael. Um, he comes out of the church. 
He knows exactly what's happened. Uh, Al Neri comes up the stairs, just whispers in his ear. Like, basically, you have to assume that he's just saying it's all taken care of, it's all done. And Michael just nods. And it's like, okay, everything's happening according to plan. I've done everything I need to do. But there are still two traitors that have to be dealt with. One of them is Tessio, and the other one is Kahlo. And I think he absolutely... Uh, Coppola does a great job with filming both of these scenes uh, where Abe Vigoda just pleading with Tom Hagen, uh, not mm-hmm. really pleading, you know, like uh, uh, dramatic pleading, but just looking you at get him me with, off with a hook. smile. Exactly. Yep. Can you get me off the hook for old time's sake? He almost plays it with a respect, like I didn't know he had yeah. it in him. Like that son of a bitch, yeah. he knew it was me. He got me. Almost to, almost to like the point where if I have to go out, I'm going out because a smarter guy outsmarted me. And yeah. it's almost, and it's really, it, I it's, it's the complete real, opposite of Carlo, you know? Exactly. It's exactly. the complete Where opposite. Carlo, yeah. Where Carlo really is, and it really is the dichotomy between the two characters. Tessio might have been a traitor. He might have been someone that betrayed Michael, but, but he was he's still an honorable. Family. He's an honorable man, and he's still yep. family, and he's still honorable in terms of the, the you know, right. <laughs> family. It was, you know, it, but, it was just but, business. But not, I always not, liked him. I was on a pedestal here, but, you know, it's he's still, there's still an honor to Tessio and still a toughness and a strength yep. to Tessio. That Carlo and he wanted, he, wanted Michael, he wanted Michael to know that it wasn't personal. You know, exactly. Going Please back to it, it was, it, yeah. And, it was and you have to believe that Tom, in his due diligence, probably went back and did tell Michael that. And Michael probably realized it. But he knew that once there was that betrayal, that he could not be let off the hook. There was no way that he could do it. Whereas Carlo was a coward. And right. he really shows his true colors. He swears on the life of his kid that he didn't do anything. To, I mean, just despicable move after despicable move, trying to lie to Michael's face to tell him that, no, I didn't have, I swear to God, I didn't do anything. And Michael just very calmly, very nonchalantly tells him that all of your, all of your associates are dead now. You have nothing to lie to me about. I know you did it. Don't lie to me. Tell me what you did. And he lulls him into a false sense of security that if you tell me what you did, I'll let you off the hook. I'm not going to turn my sister into a widow. Meanwhile, he's got Clemenza waiting in the back of the car with the Garrett, but that's okay. <laughs> we'll get into that in a minute. <laughs> and he just gets Carlo out of his sight. Um, Carlo is a guy that thought that he had got Michael's trust. Michael had really lulled him in, thinking that when he moved out to Las Vegas, he was going to be his right-hand man. He had been, yep. Carlo had really ascended to the top of the family, and he was really feeling it. You can see it. He's wearing the Everything the, the, the that he wanted to get vest. accomplished and was accomplished. Exactly, and he's looking the part, and he's really yep. you know doing everything and wearing the hats now, and you know he's doing everything to be like mini Michael, basically, which yep. is, is actually a, uh, a misnomer because Johnny Russo is actually a lot taller than Al Pacino. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in, in that respect, he was like he was like Michael Light, Michael version 2.0. And um, Kahlo is bril- brutally and brilliantly garroted uh, in the uh, in the car once Kahlo gets in. Clemenza strangles him, and in me, to me, one of the most poignant scenes in The Godfather is when you see Michael after he witnesses the death of Kahlo. He just turns with Tom Hagen. And with a couple of his uh, his guys, I think it's Rocco Lampone and Al Neri, and they walk and they walk toward the house, and yep. they walk toward his father's house. And at that moment, Michael is now 
the Godfather officially. It has, it's not just in his mind. It's not just the resignation that he has. He has now consolidated his power over the heads of the five families. And he's now the man. He is now what his father was. And now it's on his shoulders to be the man that his father was. And we'll get into that when we chronicle the Godfather part two. But Michael very coldly uh, continues on. He denies right to not only Connie's face, but also his wife Kay's face, yep. uh, that he had anything to do with the deaths of all of the heads of the five families and Carlo. Uh, he's moving the family out to Las Vegas like he said he was going to. They actually end up going to, uh, to uh, Nevada, to Lake Tahoe, but it's close enough where he's going to do that, and this right. is the vision he has for the family. And in one of the more brilliant ending scenes, Michael denies to his wife that he had any type of criminal uh, wrongdoing. And Kay is off to the side. Looks like she's fixing herself a drink. And she sees Rocco and Clemenza come in and kiss the ring of her husband. And at that moment, the look of terror on her face that what have I just married into? What have I gotten myself into here? The door closes and the coda comes on. And The Godfather, part one, has come to its conclusion. And after four hours of chronicling this, my friend, I mean, we have really, really dissected yeah. this movie to its nth degree. But uh, for all of you who downloaded these two episodes, thank you for hanging with us um, in a really, really difficult, uh, you know, I'm sure, uh, you know, very uh, long, painstaking uh, <laughs> listen to this. But uh, <laughs> we hope that you've been uh, able to learn a lot more about the movie than, than you could ever have before. Yeah. Exactly. That's what we're here for, and that's what we like to do. And you know, with this movie, it just out of respect, we had to do it in two shows to 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 bring that to you. And in in in, in tying it all up, this movie has affected cinema in so many ways, cinema and television in so many ways. You you can't um, really. <clears throat> add it all up. You, you you sit here and and list how many different. Um, inspirations it has spawned from uh you know the sopranos to the simpsons for christ's sakes and 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 every every mob movie that you you've ever seen afterwards all the ones that we love um the the gangster films before this movie were not centered around the italian americans and their struggle um in the united states to become more americanized to become um successful in this country as we said in the first the first part of of this two-part series but i mean for for good it was it was it was parodied in saturday night live uh john belushi um appeared in a skit as vito corleone at a therapy session does this sound familiar um <laughs> in a therapy session expressing his inner feelings about the Tatalia family and um you know he, he's just to to his therapist as, as to why he hates these people and can't let them go and he's listing it off and at the end he says yeah also they shot my son 56 times um <laughs> you know which which brings us to you know other movies like um oh god what was um billy crystal and and um the analyze oh, analyze this analyze, analyze this. this with uh, yep. uh with Robert De Niro where they parodied the Don's murder scene. Right. And um, the Sopranos and, uh, Yeah, yep. and the Sopranos where uh uh you know uh Olivia uh, Soprano the uh, the, the mm -hmm. matriarch of the family dies and they essentially recreate uh the Don's trip down the uh, the uh I can still see it down the elevator and uh you know and then the the uh 
Undertaker's coming in, and he's saying, "I'm going to use all my powers and all my skills." And Tony looks, "All right, let's not get carried away here." You know, and like they almost stop short. They almost stop short of it, which is great. Uh, one of my favorite parodies of this is uh, uh, "You've Got Mail" with uh, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, where she's describing her lament of how men are always obsessed with the Godfather, and yep. um, he's going on and on about how the Godfather is the answer to all your questions. And you know, That's really, it. it just to go into the mattresses is one of the, the the part of the pieces of the American lexicon. Believe the gun, take the Tanoli. I mean, how many iconic uh, make him an offer he can't refuse? I mean, that's that line is used so so often. I mean, and it's really it's it's you know used I think maybe more than any other uh, you know line in this film. But the legacy of The Godfather and the impact that it had on the genre and then it's had on both of our lives, which really I think explains why we've taken so long to explain it, has just been you know phenomenal. And it really leads into in my opinion, one of the extremely, extremely few movies that has a sequel that could really live up to the hype of the original, and The Godfather Part Two certainly, certainly does that. We can't wait to get into that right. one. Um, but uh, for the time whenever, being, whenever you friend, hear a poll, whenever you hear a poll about the best sequels of all time, people yeah. always put in there excluding The Godfather Part Two because exactly. it's just not fair. It, it's yeah, just not because fair. it's almost seen like just an extension of the, right. the original. People don't even look at it as as a movie sequel. They just look at it as a continuation of the telling of the story, uh, the tragic telling of the story of the Corleone family, and really the story of Michael Corleone, which I think, and we'll get into this the next time, I think is really a... Um, I think it's really a metaphor for what America went through at the time when The Godfather was released in the early 70s with the transition from, uh, you know, a, a period of sort of like an era of good feelings to a period of, of really paranoia among a lot of Americans with authority figures. And you see Michael really be that uh, that type of a figure. But yep. for the time being, my friend, I think the uh, uh, the electricity on the bar is about to be shut off. I think we've definitely, uh, you know, I think we've definitely overstayed our welcome um, at the Shape Ify tonight. <laughs> but uh, we do appreciate everybody hanging in there with us. And uh, please, uh, by all means, uh, let us know. We are going to take a little Godfather break and probably a couple of week break uh, for the uh, uh, the Shape Ify. But um yeah, Murph, we'll do uh, next before, next time. Let's do something a little little more lighthearted that we can just have fun and get in get in and out of in under an hour. So, so yeah, what do you say exactly. we do that? We actually do the freshman. I think so. I think that's a great right. transition and really a great parody of this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. Matthew Broderick and Marlon Brando really were, I think, a better combination on screen than a lot of people give it credit for. So stay tuned for the freshman. In the meantime, Murph, uh, where can everybody, all our fans of the Shape at the Mob Pod, find you on social media? Oh, folks, you can find me on social media at TMurf207. From there, you can uh, check out uh, the other podcasts that I do, all the writing that I do, and, you know, just hang out and have a good time. What about you, Mike? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at M-D-A-B-A-T-E-F-T-C. Uh, you can also find uh, me on uh, my content and the content of a lot of our great writers uh, with NFL content at fullpresscoverage.com. Uh, you can always find me sitting next to this fine gentleman here on the Shape at the Mob Pod, which is available on iTunes. It's available on the Google App Store as well. So be sure to download us, uh, take us with you, and uh, we would love to hear, absolutely, and we would love that to hear. App, uh, 
from uh, yeah, definitely, and we would love to hear some feedback on this as well. So, on behalf of my good friend Murph, I am Mike Debate, wishing you a fond adieu from the Shade That Be Mob Pod. Thank you for joining us today, and now you can leave. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.